Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, our subject for today is God's covenant with Adam in the garden. You will remember, perhaps, that when we talked about covenants at the very beginning of this series, we defined covenant as a formal disposition of affairs between two parties that is confirmed by oaths and in which promises are made and obligations accepted. But when we talk about God's covenant of grace, which is going to be the subject of our next studies, We may define covenant a little more narrowly because the covenant of grace does not have all the characteristics of some of the covenants that are made between man and man. We may say, for example, that the covenant of grace is unilateral and unconditional. God does everything in his covenants. He chooses those with whom he makes his covenant and he brings them to himself. Uh, He makes his promises to them, and he swears an oath by them, uh, by himself. He imposes obligations on them, and he does everything that is necessary, therefore, to establish and maintain the covenant. So we may define the covenant as God's promise of salvation. Really, I think that The covenant is, in fact, not different from the promise of the gospel. It is God's promise to be our God, which he confirms with an oath sworn by himself and which he establishes and maintains wholly by his grace. Now, this does not mean, of course, that we have no obligations in his covenant. Along with his covenant promise, comes for us an obligation to live as his people, to love and obey him. This is the point of the introduction to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. That's a covenantal statement. And it is because of that covenantal statement that he makes that he also says, you shall have no other God before me. He promises, therefore, blessing to those who keep his covenant And he threatens judgment on us when we do not keep his covenant. And the history of Israel is, of course, uh, solid proof of that fact. Throughout that history, Israel frequently broke his covenant. And God judged them severely in the time of the judges, at the end of the period of the kings, and so on. But God also blessed them when they were faithful to his covenant. And this was according to his word, as we find it in Leviticus chapter 26. This is a a very important chapter for the understanding of God's covenant and how he works and um, blesses those who keep his covenant and curses those who do not keep his covenant. In the first 13 verses of that chapter, you find the promise of blessing uh, to those who keep his covenant. He says in verse 2, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the fruits, the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And he goes on in that vein through the rest of that section. But then when you get to uh, verse 13, God begins to pronounce, verse 14 rather, 
uh, uh, when you get to that verse, God begins to pronounce curses on those who will not keep his covenant. And he says there, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And he goes on in that vein through verse 17. But then an interesting thing happens. Verses 14 to 17 are a pronouncing of curse on those who break his covenant. But then if you look at verses 18 to 20, God um, says, and after this, that is after you have broken my covenant and I have cursed you for the, the breaking of my covenant and you still do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So he says, I will curse you even more if you still do not obey me. That's verses 18 to 20. In verses 21 and 22, he says the same sort of thing again. If you still do not obey me, I will uh, walk contrary to you. And I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. In verse 23, he does this a fourth time. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And in verse 27 to 39, he says it yet a fifth time. He again says, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. So God uh, keeps on saying, if you do not keep my covenant, I'm going to punish you. And if after I punish you, you do not keep my covenant, I'm going to punish you even more. And if after that punishment, you do not uh, keep my covenant, I'm going to punish you even more. And he says this five times. And then in verses 40 to 43, he begins to talk about what will happen if they confess their sins and return to the keeping of his covenant. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. And then we have in verses 44 and 45, God's conclusion to this. And he begins uh, that, uh, those two verses by saying, yet for all that. And I think what he means there is, yet for all that I have said before, um, in the light of all this that I've said about cursing you for disobedience, and in the light of all this that I've said about blessing you when you obey, Understand this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, 
whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God threatens severe judgments, but at the end of all those threats of severe judgments, he says, I will not break my covenant. This is the nature of God's covenant with his people. Now let's turn then in the light of that introduction to the covenants of grace, to God's covenant with Adam in the garden. This covenant with Adam in the garden is often spoken of as a covenant of works. In fact, the Westminster Confession in uh, chapter 7, paragraph 2, uses exactly that language. The first covenant made with Adam was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now that is interpreted by Charles Hodge in his uh, dogmatics as meaning that when God created Adam in the garden and laid on him the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God was putting him under probation. And God was saying to him, you must keep this commandment, but if you keep this commandment for a certain length of time, then you will be confirmed in your state in the garden, in this state of immortality in the garden. It's not, it doesn't have to be understood that way, that there is this period of probation followed by confirmation in the state of perfection and immortality in the garden. But that's the way Hodge takes it. And I think there's a problem with that. And I think the main problem with that is that uh, there is no scriptural evidence at all for this idea of probation. And in fact, Hodge himself offers in support of this only the argument that the angels who kept their first estate were confirmed in that state. That appears to be true from the fact that those angels who kept their first estate are called in Jude uh, the elect angels. But that's pretty weak proof. And I think if we're going to talk in terms of a covenant of works, we should not attached to it this idea of probation, but simply say that what God meant when he spoke to Adam was that as long as he obeyed him there in the garden, he would uh, be allowed to live in the garden. He would continue in the life and blessedness of his life there in the garden, and that's all. But at any point, if he would break God's commandment, then he would die. The day you eat of that tree, you will die. But I'm also somewhat disturbed or somewhat uneasy with the language of uh, covenant of works here. And I'm somewhat uneasy with that language because it really, it seems to me, reduces the idea of the covenant to an agreement. And in scripture, when we're talking about God's covenants with men, the idea of agreement just is not uh, very suitable. It doesn't capture at the minimum uh, everything that is characteristic of the covenant. When God makes his covenant with man, God is as the great God, the infinite God of heaven and earth, condescending in kindness and in love 
to his creatures. He is uh, taking it upon himself to make friends. The eternal and infinite God is taking it upon himself to make friends with a creature who is formed from the dust of the ground, a creature who is infinitely lower than himself. There is enormous kindness and enormous condescension in that that's not captured by this idea of a covenant of works. Furthermore, I think we should notice that there's no uh, question of man meriting anything. Jesus says uh, in Luke chapter 17, when you have done everything that is required of you, say, I am an unprofitable servant. I have done that which was my duty to do. God had no obligation, in other words, to uh, bless Adam, to live with Adam, to take Adam into his fellowship. And Adam didn't merit that by his obedience. That was condescension on God's part. That was kindness and love on God's part for Adam. And this love always characterizes God's covenants of grace. Furthermore, I think we should understand the principle of the law. We need to understand the principle of the law. And this principle of the law is expressed in in a a number of different uh, places. Let's look first at Nehemiah 9, verse 29. Nehemiah 9, verse 29. Nehemiah is here praying to God. And he says to God here, You testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not your heed and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. That's the principle of the law. Do this and you shall live. Do this and you shall live. That's the principle of the law. And that uh, principle is repeated, for example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 28. Luke 10, verse 28, where we read this. He said to him, this is Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I've kept them. And he recited the the commandments. And Jesus says, you answered rightly about this, that you must keep the commandments, do this, and you will live. That's the principle of the law. Romans 10 verse 5 states it again. Romans 10 verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And Galatians 3 verse 12 again, in that great book about justification by faith, Galatians 3, verse 12, Paul says this, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So the principle of law is always, do this and thou shalt live. It was the principle of the law for Adam in the garden. Do this and you shall live. And it is the principle of the law for us today. Do this and you shall live. We When we live in obedience to the law, we have life. And that is because the law defines the sphere of life. Now, life is, of course, knowing God 
walking with God, having fellowship with God. As Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God is holy. To walk with him, we must be holy as he is holy. As long as we walk in holiness, we live with him and we walk with him. But as soon as we depart from holiness, we also depart from him and we die. And this was true for Adam in the garden too. God gave him his commandment. And for Adam, that meant that obeying that commandment of God was to walk in the sphere of life, to walk with God. But as soon as he transgressed that commandment, he left the sphere of life and he died. We may illustrate this by God's law for fish. God has ordained that fish will live in the water. When fish depart from that sphere in which God created them, that sphere of life for them, they die. And the same is true for us. God has created us to walk in obedience to him, to walk in that sphere of life which he has defined by his law, and when we transgress that law, we die. We become like a train off the tracks, which cannot go anywhere or do anything. We need the tracks of God's law in order to have life. So the principle of the law is do this and you shall live. For us, in our fallen state, that principle of the law uh, is unobtainable. That is, we cannot do it and live. We cannot obey. And because we cannot obey, we cannot live. And if we could obey now, completely and perfectly, we would still be under the sentence of death for transgressions committed in the past because our present obedience doesn't pay for former sins. And if we had never committed any sin at all from the moment of our conception until the present moment in our life, we still could not live because of the guilt of Adam's sin, which adheres to us. We are under the sentence of death. And so the law always says to us, do this and you shall live. Don't do it, transgress it, and you will die. But we have transgressed and we have died. And therefore, that law, that principle of the law, do this and thou, and you shall live, which is an eternal principle of the law, it does not change throughout every age, is a principle according to which we cannot live. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ both justifies and sanctifies us. By his justification, he removes from us the sentence of death. By his sanctification of us, he restores us to obedience to the law. He restores us to that sphere of life which is defined by the law. And if that's what we mean by the covenant of works, that as long as Adam obeyed, he would live in fellowship with God, 
but when he disobeyed, he died, then I don't have any problem with that language. But I would prefer, actually, not to use that idea because it suggests the idea of of an agreement and it suggests the idea also of merit, both of which are impossible for us in relationship to God. Only Christ has merit in the presence of God. So then, is it legitimate to speak of a covenant with Adam in the garden? There are a few uh, somewhat tentative scriptural evidences of a covenant of God in the garden. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of the Covenants, talks about these, and he refers to Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36, where God is talking about the creation of the sun and the moon. And he says this there in those verses, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. And he takes that then in connection with Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah 33, where God is really talking about the, in the same kind of language. And he says this, verses 20 and following, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. So he talks about the sun and the moon, his covenant with the sun and the moon. And this could well refer to God's original creation of things. And he uses that covenant of God with the sun and the moon to illustrate the unbreakableness of his covenant with David. If you can break that covenant, if you can make the sun cease to rise, and control day and night, then you can also break my covenant with David. The weakness of that argument, I think, is that it doesn't refer specifically to a covenant with Adam. A covenant with Adam is at best implied in those words of Jeremiah 31 and 33. Another uh, tentative evidence of a covenant of God with Adam in the garden is found in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, which reads in the New King James Version, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. The word men there is the word Adam, which means really mankind, but is also the name of Adam. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. The question there is, of course, does he mean Adam himself? <clears throat> and is he talking about Adam's transgression of a covenant that God made with him in the garden? Or does he simply mean mankind? They, like mankind, have transgressed the covenant. 
Um, and this would be then God saying, just like uh, men have always done in the history of the world, from the beginning until now, in breaking my covenant, so Israel is doing also today. There they dealt treacherously with me. So that's not really either a strong evidence of a covenant of God with Adam in the garden. However, when we look at that threat of, dis- of death upon disobedience in Genesis chapter 2, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I think we may say about that threat uh, of death upon disobedience that it implies a promise of life on continued obedience. As long as Adam did not disobey, as long as he continued in obedience, the promise of God was he would continue to live with God in the garden. But the scriptures don't use the language of covenant here. They don't uh, use that kind of terminology. You don't find that word covenant, in fact, until Genesis 6 and the time of Noah. Nevertheless, that promise of life can be called, I think, that implied promise of life can be called a covenant. Why do the scriptures not describe it as a covenant? Well, I think because it did not exist by a specific covenant making, as you have with Noah or Abraham or David or Israel at Mount Sinai. Instead, God created Adam in that relationship with himself. He created him as his friend servant in the garden. He created him in his image, in holiness and righteousness and knowledge of God. He created him in fellowship with himself. Adam was therefore in the relationship, the covenantal relationship, as soon as he had consciousness. And he understood that covenant, covenantal relationship from that moment. He understood that he was uh, living and walking and talking with God as his friend, that God was his God, and that he was God's child. And then God, in order that Adam might live antithetically before him, God added that commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The relationship existed already. The commandment was spoken so that Adam might live antithetically in the fellowship of God. So we may, I think, speak of a covenant on the basis of this implied promise of God that as long as he continued in obedience, he would uh, continue to live in the garden in the blessedness of fellowship with God there. But there's no formal uh, disposition of affairs between God and Adam from uh, other than that negative command. There's no oath-taking on God's part. That covenant, also we may say then, had its sign or signs, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is the sign that he would have life in the way of obedience. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would not have life if he disobeyed. 
And if we accept that idea then, that God did have a covenant with Adam in the garden, then I think what we have to recognize is two things. First of all, Adam was obligated to serve God there in the garden, to do those things which God commanded him to do, to eat of the tree of life, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was obligated to serve God. And uh, he was therefore to perform the works, the obligations of the covenant which God had laid on him. But that's not all there is to it. There is also the fact that in the way of obedience, he continued to have fellowship with God. God was his God. That was life to him. He was not only God's servant, but also God's friend. So those are the two things I think that characterize, centrally characterize this covenant. An obligation to serve his God, but also in the way of that obedience to God, to have fellowship with God, to have God as his God there in the garden. Now, O. Palmer Robertson, again in his book, Christ of the Covenant, Covenants, points out uh, three other areas in which Adam was to obey God. The first was the observing of the Sabbath day. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that when God had finished his work of creating the heavens and the earth in six days, he rested on the seventh day and he sanctified that day. And that meant that Adam was not to work on that day. He was to follow the example of God himself. God worked six days and rested the seventh. Adam was also to work six days and rest the seventh day. And though it's not particularly mentioned, I think we may also say that this uh, um, resting on the Sabbath was not simply a ceasing from his care of the garden, but was also a day of special fellowship with God, a special way in some way of coming into his presence. It wasn't presence. It wasn't just Adam sitting around doing nothing on that day, but it was a day for him to enjoy in a special way the fellowship of God. So that was his first obligation, to observe the Sabbath day. The second obligation was to work in the garden. God commanded him, Genesis 2 verse 15, to till the garden and to care for the garden. So he had not only the obligation of rest on the Sabbath, but he also had the obligation of work on the other six days of the week. And we may add to this that this uh, work which Adam uh, was to do includes that cultural mandate what we call the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, where God said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. This is a part of the work which Adam was to do. And the third thing which Adam was to do was to be joined to his wife, or as the King James has it more accurately, to cleave to his wife. That's in Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, or shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Those were his obligations in his relationship to God as God's friend-servant. And as long as he continued to fulfill those obligations, he continued to live in the garden, to enjoy the fellowship of God, to have life. But of course, Adam did not do that. Adam fell into sin. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he did that, he died as God had threatened. The fall, therefore, destroyed the covenantal relationship between God and Adam. He lost his fellowship with God. He lost his place in the Garden of Eden. He lost his access to the tree of life. He was driven out of the garden and he was cursed by God. Physical and spiritual death took over. He died in his soul, and he began to die in his body so that eventually also his body returned to the dust from which it was taken. Adam died. He left the sphere of life by transgressing the commandments of God. He willingly, voluntarily chose death instead of life. And he lost that covenant relationship with God. It was gone. There was, as far as he was concerned, no more fellowship with God after that. And there was no way back to it as far as he was concerned. And there is no way back to it as far as we are concerned. It's like this. To use an illustration from justice today, a man commits murder. He's sentenced to death for his commission of murder, and he's executed for that sin. He's dead. Well, there's no way back to life for him. He cannot atone for his sin in any way. He's dead. He has no option to live obediently from now on as if he can somehow then pay for his sin which he committed, he's dead. He can't live anymore. He cannot come back from the dead. He cannot do anything. This is our situation under Adam. We are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Our bodies are dying and returning to the dust. There's no way back to that original covenant. The principle of the law, which says, do this and you will live, is Uh, Something we can't live by anymore. We cannot uh, obey the commandments of God. We cannot atone for the sins which we have committed. We cannot raise ourselves from the death which is a sentence against us. It's, we're, we're dead. We're done. We're finished. There's no way back for us into that original covenant which God made with Adam. And this serves then to emphasize, doesn't it, that the only way back is the covenant of grace 
which God establishes with us in our Lord Jesus Christ. That covenant which he began to talk about already in Genesis 3, verse 15. It's our only hope. It's the only way of life for us. That God has promised a seed of the woman to overcome the serpent and his seed. And it's to that covenant of grace that we turn our attention next time. May God bless us with his word.